Hello and welcome to Retrospective Replay Episode 6, a weekly serialised podcast on video games. This is Season 1, Vagrant Story. My name is Ian, and with me tonight is Michael. Hello, Michael. Hello, Ian. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Um, Weather is a bit better. Spring is in the air. Can't complain. Yeah. So we're recording this a little later than we normally would. We normally like to record on a Sunday night, but due to a personal injury sustained by myself, we're recording this a bit later. So for me, it's fine because I record my sessions and review it and take notes, but for you it might just be a little bit more memory jogging to do but i'm sure you'll be fine yeah sure i've got lots of intelligent things to say i have a great memory so i'm like an elephant so I, <laughs> I <can't remember. laughs> that's great that's fine last week we come out of the mines and we saved at rue so flower street so this is where we restart now and basically we're just at the other side of the river where we saw Guildenstern earlier before the mines however now there's a green floating platform that allows us to cross the river without going back through the mines if you want to access the workshop or go even further back than that because as it seems with this game uh, you can move forward and back quite freely because what we'll be talking about probably next week we get a key to actually backtrack slightly so we start like we said at flower street rubuke we move on to the glacieldra kirk ruins and here, there is a gate that's sealed with a rude inverse, which right now we've got no idea what it is. There's another exit that takes us back to the Turkulus floor, which is the other side of the river, the, the Dwayne boss fight. Next, the only way to go takes us to Rue Saint d'Alsa, which I think is Saint d'Alsa Street. So this is more side streets, which are very narrow and very uneven, presumably from all these earthquakes that have been happening, because how many have we saw at this point? Does it? Yeah, there's earthquakes all the time. I'm surprised the place is even standing. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I think that might get explained a bit later. We get a cutscene. Ashley spots Sydney walking and then follows him. Ashley hides around a corner and the screen fades to black. The music, a meeting starts to play. The blonde woman, Guildenstern's love interest, Samantha, is looking at a gate, much like the one we saw that was sealed up with the rude inverse, and she says to Guildenstern, we can pass through here. Guildenstern is on his knees looking at something, and Sam asks what he has found. He replies, ancient Kildean lettering, it's quite worn, nigh unreadable. She follows up with, anything useful? Which is stupid, so he's just said to her, it's unreadable, and she's went, oh, is anything useful? Yeah, that's, that, yeah. Um, on Kildean, can I just make a point to here? That Kildean lettering, the, it's supposedly that's a lettering from an ancient religious group called Kiltia. And this group appears in other games in the Final Fantasy series. So this Kildean lettering is some form of lettering or glyphs or whatnot used by this religious group, Kiltia, that exists in Final Fantasy games. Vagrant Story seems to exist in the same universe as Final Fantasy in that respect. Sam says, have you found anything useful? Which 
which we know he wouldn't have, but he does reply, I think not, yet the carvings are particularly deep in places. Samantha then gets down on her knees to inspect the engravings, and she states, they're quite charming, what do they mean? The Guildenstern spins around informing her that there are more in the area on the surrounding walls. Sam says, ancient Kildeen from Mullencamp's time. Guildenstern responds with, these were written before the birth of St. Iochus, a time where sorcerers were as common as cell swords. Sam looks down and Guildenstern asks her, what is it? A camera then looks at the castle and moves downwards. Sam then says, the Cardinal will stop the legacy of Mullencamp and the Grimoires from falling into the wrong hands. Guildenstern reassures her and says that letting Sidney to get the power would be madness while referring to him as a fanatic. Sam then replies to say, I fear he already has the Grand Grimoire. Guildenstern just says, I don't know, but if he had, we probably wouldn't be talking. Then Sam calls it the Grand Grimoire, the ultimate codex of sorcery. We know now, I mean, at least we know what people are kind of after now, right? This Grand Grimoire. Yeah, well, well, I think the the Grand Grimoire as well, it it seems to be linked to something called the Grand Grimoire. And I think that's something, whether it's real or not, is a black magic grimoire and it's used to summon the devil. Um, I think it's also in literature referred to as the Red Dragon. And if you remember, I think the Red Dragon was one of this in the series of the Sons of the Lamb films. But anyway, it's, it's, it's used as a mechanism for summoning Lucifer or the devil, the Grand Grimoire. So... Whether or not the Grand Grimoire is similar, I guess we'll find out. But in literature, it's um, the Grand Grimoire is this book for summoning the devil. Guildenstern says it is only a book, a covenant, yet it is the prime mover, the machinery of life itself. Sam then notices something and Guildenstern notices her and looks over. And it was a really cool effect. The camera pulls back and it comes through the gates and there's two gates almost like an airlock. And it comes back through the gates and settles behind Sydney, who is about 10 feet away from them. However, they're separated by this gate. The camera sits right behind him and you can see the tattoo on his back. The music of false memory then begins to play. <laughs> Sydney interjects and says, and if you had that book... Guildenstern acknowledges Sydney and Sam goes for his sword, but Guildenstern stops there. Sydney adds, You wouldn't know what to do with such power. Guildenstern then asks Sydney why he's been in leagues with the Duke, and he says that he wants to control men and gods. Sydney dismisses this with, Oh, please, and says, War pig minds of men in shepherding the masses has always been your church's domain, which is quite, um, it's quite an attack on, this, on church and religion, really, isn't it? Yeah. You know, he then adds, you lure sheep with empty miracles and a dead god. The camera zooms in on Sydney and he addresses Samantha by name and says, perhaps you too are a sheep. A poor little lamb bleating for your faith as though it were the milk of the poppy. The camera looks on Samantha for a reaction. Sydney says, yet mark your savour well, for his is one of the demons you fear, Samantha. Sam tells him to be silent. And Sydney tries some sort of mind control, like dark art mind control. You get some blurring effects. But Guildenstern somehow manages to interrupt this by stepping in the way. Maybe it's like powers clashing. He adds, be wary. Don't let him get to you. 
Sidney then says that Guildenstern's will is very strong, and Guildenstern replies to him, you are not the only shepherd here, Sidney. Guildenstern then shows some amazing prowess or power, and he warps behind Sidney and attacks him with the sword. But Sidney dodges this, and when Sidney turns around, Guildenstern is standing back next to Samantha, so he's got some crazy powers, right? Yeah. Guildenstern tells Sidney to watch out, and while he turns to walk away, Sidney then phases through a wall. And this will explain the whole Melos thing, and then when he started appearing to the other men as well, isn't it? Yeah, so it kind of transform himself, or teleport himself, or well, phase, is it? What's, is the, what's the term? Would it be phasing? Yeah, yeah, phasing, I guess, yeah. You know, or no no clip mode like in Doom. Yeah. One thing, actually, the term that was used in that, the milk of the poppy, I've only heard that one other place before, and that's in Game of Thrones. It's referred to as milk of the poppy. Obviously, poppies are used for pain. Uh, opiates, yeah. Yeah, opiates and opium poppy, but the milk of the poppy, I mean, I mean, it's probably used elsewhere, but I think it was used quite commonly in Game of Thrones. Yeah, I think you're right there. I think I do. Now that you've said it, I do recall something about that. But it might be something that's used quite commonly in, in kind of fantasy. Sam goes to give chase for whatever silly reason, and Guildenstern says, it's no use, we must make haste. And then Guildenstern finishes with, run, Sydney, run, you will be ours in the end. Then the camera moves back to Ashley, who questions the grand grimoire. Yeah, and that's one of the things, that that run, Sydney, run, you'll be ours in the end. That made me think then, is Sydney really the bad guy here? Um, I don't know, it's kind of, I'm on the fence about Sydney at this point now. Yeah, because Gillenstern and his lot seem to also be, well, they have their own motives and they don't seem to be the purest of motives. I'm, yeah, I'm the same, I'm on the fence now. Who is the, who is the real bad guy? Yeah, I'm sure in time it'll all come out. In terms of tiering, Guildenstern's number one with Sydney close second at this point. Well, there's the, also the mysterious Cardinal. Gameplay resumes. We are in Philly Portway and there's no way to go. The gates are locked in front of us. So you have to move back to Rue Saint-Dalsa. And then when you go into there, you're attacked by two knights straight away who aren't really tough at all. And then you're meant to jump up some blocks into a small chapel. And in this chapel is where we saw Sydney and Harden last week having that conversation about being friends and, and whatnot. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that the spell that the knights used to make themselves stronger is the spell Heracles. And Heracles is the Greek version of um, the Roman Hercules. It's it's quite apt that is the spell that gives them strength. So when you go in this chapel, it's called Dinus Walk. The background changes from bird sounds to just wind sounds, so you can't hear the birds anymore, just like wind blowing through the building, which it has a large sort of hole you need to jump through, which I thought was a bit of a tricky jump. The only way I got over was to jump sort of at an angle from the left to the right, then Ashley kind of grabs on and pulls himself up, but I do think it's quite easy to miss. This is like a room that bends 90 degrees to the right, and then there's a door to the left, which takes us back into Villeport Way, but now we're on the other side of Villeport Way. So there was the two gates that were like the airlock, or lack of a better term, that you couldn't get through. We're now on the other side of that. When we exit the building, we're three or four blocks higher than the enemy, which gives plenty of times to cast whatever spells we want. Then you jump down, fight him. It wasn't very hard. You move through the only open gate, which goes down a very narrow, very dark stone stairway. Then the screen fades to black and we hear a couple of bells. No cutscene. 
The gameplay then resumes, but we are in a new area called Under City West. The music Under City starts to play. starting room is the bread peddler's way. Can I just say something here? That's the blue room, isn't it? With the Harry Potter music. It's not Harry Potter music. Harry Potter stole music from Vagrant Story. Yeah, I, this is very much... Um, Vagrant Story should be getting on to John Williams or whoever on the Harry Potter music and have a word with them. Because <laughs> it is very Harry Potter. So this whole area is very sort of green greens and blues isn't it and it looks like a victorian london back streets really it's got cast iron lampposts it's got stone benches on the corners the floors are cobbled yeah you expect dick van dyke to come out and start singing chim chim <laughs> to be honest it probably was quite a nice place when it was full of human life but it's not full of human life it's full of it's full of humans but they're certainly not alive yeah they're full they're all dead so this room bends 90 degrees to the right again and next we go to Way of the Motherlord. The Motherlord? Yeah, Way of the Motherlord, yeah. I don't know what the Motherlord is, Motherlord of what? Pain. It's a T-shaped room with two other doors to go through. So straight on and to the right, they're undead lying on the floor. When they're lying on the floor, you can just run past them and they'll get up and try and chase you. But normally you can get through the door before they manage to even get close and hit you or perform a spell. I prefer just to hit them when they're on the ground because you can normally beat them before they manage to even attempt to retaliate. But what I learned at this point is, you know, you can just use your healing spell on them to kill them. Oh, really? Yeah, because if they're undead, obviously use a healing spell and it hurts them instead of healing them. Straight on is a bit of a dead end. It's just a room that bends 90 degrees to the left. Got some skeletons in a locked door with a silver key, so it's no good to us. But right takes us to the Underdark Fish Market. So you'll remember this one, even though you haven't played it for a week, you will remember it. It's a cutscene. The screen has a red tint on it, and we're looking at Ashley walk through the door from a very low down point of view, almost from the ground. We cut to Ashley, who stops in his tracks, but he's completely unfazed by whatever he sees, and the door slams behind him. I mean, this guy is cool as a cucumber all the time, isn't he? Yeah, especially given what's in front of him. Then the camera cuts to a giant claw that's snapping ferociously. Then we are suddenly looking in the face of a giant crab. The boss music, Iron Crab, that then begins to play. Ashley readies himself for the fight as the crab dances left and right on the spot. Finally, it stands up, and it must be 15 feet tall. Oh, it's a a big-ass crab. It's probably about 300 times the size of a normal crab. This boss giant crab has 420 health points. It's a beast. It has water infinity, and it has a special attack called Aqua Bubble. So the gameplay resumes at this point. For me, I didn't do anything special. I used my rapier, you know, the uh, the Hagane steel rapier that okay. I made, and I buffed my gear with the, um, the, bu- the buff gear spell. I didn't change the affinity, I just did the spell to buff your gear and ran in for the attack. Uh, when you get close enough to it, you then can hit it in the mouth. Ah. But first of all, before I started attacking it, I cast uh, Degenerate on it to lower its strength. It's got 420 health, and I was hitting it for 75 health points per hit. So I was just doing small chain, because once you got past two or three hits, it would then miss every time. So I just did two or three hits, and it went down super quick. 
Yeah, well, well, you used to rape your eye. Just, you know, it's a beast. So, trusty Tavarish. And that worked. It worked very well. Yeah, Tavarish. And, and I went for the arms. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't say he was a very powerful boss. You know, it, it, I, I think he looked a lot worse than what he was. Having a massive crab is terrifying, but he went down quite easily. I got a score of 1,025,711. I had 986,810. Ooh, just pulling away now. We have covered 24% of the map. I have a rank of Daredevil. No, I'm Gladiator. Uh, you, uh, you must get Daredevil if you go over a million. It probably is, yeah. By the time we hit the next boss, he'll probably be in Daredevil. I got a bonus of plus three agility. I hit MP plus one. And some loot. Got some cure items. Elixir Queens. We know that adds health points. We got a Grimoire. Silith, which gives you the spell Luft Fusion, which increases. Well, it, it, I think it's pronounced Silf. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I think it's a it's it's a made up word. It comes from I think literature from the 16th century. Um, that's some kind of an air spirit. And one of the interesting things, and again, you know, we may talk about this later on, but there was something by Alexander Pope. One of his works called The Rape of the Lock, and uh, effectively, this guy was trying to cut some woman's hair, and these beings, these air beings, came in to to block the cut, and these were referred to as sylphs. And the main sylph, uh, their name was Ariel, and it is a turns out in Shakespeare's The Tempest there is also a character called Ariel who is also described as being an airy spirit. This idea of a sylph as an air spirit or an air elf or a uh, an air kind of being uh, would fit in with, with Shakespeare's take on it as well, Ariel from The Tempest. So yeah, some kind of a, a guardian spirit of the air variety. Right. I know there's probably people listening now thinking you haven't mentioned any of the Shakespeare references yet and we will and we will tonight because we're about in a bit going to be introducing more Shakespeare. So I guess I'll probably just all try and lump it all together, I think. Yeah, but I just thought it was interesting as well from um, because sylph, uh, uh, you know, it sounded like a French word, but it's not technically a French word. It's a word I think from I think it was a Swiss guy who came up with the idea of a sylph in the first place. Paracelsus or Paracelsus yeah I think that's his name and it's interesting that Shakespeare seemed to come up with the same thing separately so the spell Luft Fusion I quite like the name of that because Luft is German for air and fusion is obviously to combine it so the Luft Fusion increases the weapon air affinity I just thought it was a really nice little name you know I didn't pick up on any of these sort of things when I first played it 21 years ago yeah, but I think that's one of the things about the nice things about replaying a game, particularly if you're a bit older or not even older, wiser. Is that, is yeah, that wise, wiser, I would say. Wiser, definitely. Perhaps, I yeah. was not wise when I was that age. We've beat the crab and we move on to the next room, the Sunless Way. It's a cross-shaped room with four doors. One door is locked with an iron key, and we have a save point. If we go left to the Hall of Poverty, it's a T-shaped room with three doors. One is locked with a latch which I believe it means it opens from the other side, and there's three undead enemies. So if we continue this way, we next end up in the washing woman's way, which is a 90 degree bend to the left with a locked door with a silver key. So we move all the way back and go right, because that's the only door we can go through now, which is remembering days of yore. It's a T-shaped room with more undead on the ground and one door locked. So we move right on through to where the hunter climbed. And this just takes us out of the underground. It's a stone stairway that leads out into a new area called the Snowfly Forest. The room name is the Fairy Circle, 
and no music begins to play. We do, however, get a cutscene. It's quite a long cutscene. Ashley walks out of the stairwell to see something white in the air. He questions if it's snow, but then corrects himself that they are snowflies. Which is technically incorrect, because snowflies can't fly. I had a look about this because I was intrigued so about So should they be called snow walks, snow crawls? Something like that, but I mean... They're flying around, and I was interested because I hadn't heard of this thing, snowflies, before. So I had a, a search of it, and effectively they're Chionia, so they're a genesis of insect called Chionia, and they're small, flightless flies, so they do not fly. They're found in the Northern Hemisphere, um, North America, Europe, Asia, and they're called snowflies because they're frequently observed crawling around on snow. They're quite hardy, so they can they can take the cold weather. The fact that all these snowflies are flying around, is it magic that's making them fly around? Or is it in the game that they... I don't know. And also, I don't think they're not white. The flies in this game are white, but in reality, they're black. They're called snowflies because you see them on snow, not because they're white or they look like snow. I guess it's just... Um, poetic license. Poetic license. Or maybe they didn't even realise there was such a thing as a snowfly. You never know. They might have just made this up thing and, oh, that sounds good. Well, yeah, perhaps. The screen blares, and once again, Ashley takes a knee as he's about to look through someone else's eyes. The camera rotates around Ashley as the screen turns black. As before, the camera rushes forward into the back of somebody else's head. This time, it's Samantha. The screen fades white, and we re-emerge somewhere else in Leomond, looking from Samantha's eyes. She's staring at a wooden door, and a voice asks, Well, we'll open for you? Samantha turns round to a new woman who we've not seen before. And this is the first time I've noticed it, but this woman has, like, visually darker skin than everyone else. Sam replies to this woman, Nay, the sigils hold fast. And then she asks how this new mystery woman is getting on. The woman replies that she just found a workshop. And we soon learn this woman will be called Nisa. Sam clarifies to say what she meant the men and how many of them have been lost. The question is answered that the city is theirs, more or less. But Sam wants to know the number of dead. And Nisa replies, three, maybe four score. And I never knew what three or four score was. Uh, I had to look it up, and it's a group of 20, I believe. Yeah, score is 20. If you look in the Bible, the length of the average life of a person is supposed to be four score and ten, which is 70 years. Samantha notes that the dead walk greater numbers as the day is ending, and that they'll walk beneath the stars when eventide comes. Nisa then asks her he would fight this battle differently. Sam starts to protest, but proclaims that no training would prepare for this. Nisa asks Sam that if she's lost her nerve, but that war changes and they must adapt to these changes. Suddenly, from off screen, a voice says, Control your fear, and they turn to look around, and it's Guildenstern. He walks into view and adds, Lest you be controlled by its stead. And that's when Sam says, Romeo, so. There's so many Shakespeare references to this point. He's called Romeo Guildenstern, which is two separate characters from Shakespeare. That's uh, obviously Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Yeah, it, it's yeah, it's a like, what's the word? Conjunction? That's not the word. Where you put together two words? Anyway, it's two car- it's two characters in one: Romeo and Guildenstern. The concatenation? Is that what you're thinking of? I I, I don't. Okay, well, I, I think that would work. Guildenstern says Sydney's lot have caught on and they are summoning dark creatures to repel them. But he adds, they summon, yet they cannot command. He then finishes with appealing, 
that holds the demons in Le Monde will fall. And I thought this was just a reference. I thought he was just being philosophical about it. But I think it's actually a physical paling, a paling being offence. And because it's mentioned later, I thought he was just saying this and sort of philosophically like appealing that is around is fallen down. I think by the sounds of it, they actually put a fence around Leomond. That paling is interesting as well. I mean, in Ireland, the pale was effectively Dublin. The area around Dublin, it was the base of English rule in Ireland. So obviously that comes from the term of having a paling or a pale around something like a, a physical border, a fortification. Nisa then says, Sydney must be stopped. Guildenstern replies to her, indeed, Commander Nisa. But this is where we actually learn her name. I just didn't want to call her the other woman, the other whole conversation. No, and, and she's also like a, a commander. So she's quite high up in the Crimson Blades. Guildenstern continues and says, you have the right idea now to action. She salutes and walks off. Guildenstern then turns his attention to Samantha and wants to know what troubles her. Samantha replies she's worried what Sydney is doing, summoning demons that he cannot control. The camera then switches its perspective and it shows Nisa is hovering around the corner eavesdropping. While this happens, Guildenstern tells Samantha not to think about Sydney. Samantha finishes with the question, what he does defiles nature's order. This is where we cut back to a monochrome Ashley in the darkness who then questions nature's order to himself. We see the connection between this. Yeah, Gillenstern catches him doing his shinning. Yeah, he realises something's wrong and then he backhands slaps Samantha very hard across the face and she drops to the ground and she's bleeding from the side of the mouth and that's important to note. Yeah, and I think he hits her not because he's hitting her but he's hitting to, to knock her out of it. Gildenstern then says, that was him, that risk breaker has done this. The camera zooms out and we fade to black. Now back at Ashley, as he stands up, a voice from behind him says, The symptoms resemble the case of 72, was it? Ashley stands up and draws his sword, and this is where we notice he has the exact same injury as Samantha, with blood on the side of his mouth. So obviously when he's doing his shinning, there's not just a spiritual, but there's a physical connection between the two. Yeah, again... It's It's like The Simpsons, you know, where it's, if you die in your dreams, well... It's like Freddy Krueger, but it's if you die in your dreams, you die in reality. There, It isn't a riskless thing to do the shinning, or whatever we want to call it. You can be physically injured while you're in possession or possessing, for want of a better word, I guess, you know, viewing through somebody else. The man that said this is the same one we saw previously, the one at the Ogre Boss, the Duke's man. The man continues that he borrows eyes and ears and he defines this as clairvoyancing. I mean, I didn't think that was quite clairvoyancing, um, but it very well could be. I thought clairvoyance was being able to predict the future. Clairvoyant, a person who claims to have a supernatural ability to perceive events in the future or beyond normal sensory contact. It's the wrong terminology here, but that's fine. The man then says, all people are tuned to a rhythm, and rhythm is in quotations, and some find a like one and jump on board. So this is how they can see from each other's eyes. It just happens that Ashley seems to be in tune with all the women. Merlos, Sam, who knows who else he might look oh, at. so he's a ladies' man. Oh, so he's like Mel Gibson in What Women Want. He approaches Ashley, who then asks him 
if he is not a knight of the cross or one of Sydney's men. The man tells Ashley that a true seer can join someone regardless of their rhythm, but Ashley is not a true seer yet. This man said, what have you done, Sydney?" after Ashley had done that for the first time, looking at like Cal's eyes. So this man has obviously seen Sydney do that, and then he's seen him do it again. The power must have been given to Ashley by Sydney. That makes sense. Well, it does, or it's been unlocked rather than given because unlocked by Sydney. Because I'm going to go because I, I I'm not sure, but I think if I'm thinking about this, I think what everyone is looking for might be Ashley. He might be the power, but I don't know. So this that that's if you if you're bear with me here, he might be the unlocking, or he might be what's being unlocked. So that might be it. He might be the Grand Grimoire. Hey, maybe, maybe he is. Yeah, maybe it isn't a book. Maybe he is the red dragon. The man finally introduces himself, and this is where we get his name, Rosencrantz, and he's a risk breaker like Ashley. So here is another reference to the great bard. So Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were both Hamlet's friends. However, Guildenstern also shares a name with Romeo from Romeo and Juliet. And I'm sure there's going to be more than this. There might even be references in the names of weapons. Well, the thing about the sylph and the, the air spirit, again, Ariel from the Tempest. There you go, the Tempest, Shakespeare. That's another reference. Also, I don't believe that Rosencrantz is actually a wrist breaker. I think he's making this up. I believe Rosencrantz then lies to Ashley, saying that the Grand Stuart Lysate has sent him to assist to be partners, which, unless he's a double agent working against the Duke, I doubt it. Yeah, no, I think that's a lie. Ashley replies that risk breakers always work alone and a change of plans mid-mission is unthinkable. Rosencrantz says he knows nothing of Le Monde, Mullenkamp or Sydney, so they need to be partners. The VKP in the Parliament have known about the dark powers and dead that walk but have kept it a secret. At this point, Ashley is willing to listen and he puts away his weapons. The briefing from Rosencrantz is that they didn't think Ashley would go straight to Leomond from the manor, and that he was sent in to help, and says that he is better well-equipped to help than Cal with her lack of battle experience. Ashley then inquires about the dark powers being known to the VKP. Rosencrantz says he was assigned to the original investigation, and this is where we get some Leomond lore from Rosencrantz. He says Leomond is a wellspring, and that it grows power in people, clearly one of them being Ashley. It's making him something which is, in quotes, more than mortal. Like you say, maybe, maybe he is the centre yeah, of all be. this. Because he is getting more yeah. powerful. And the idea of wellspring as well, this Leomond is a wellspring. It's like in um, Sunnydale in Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the Hellmouth. Rosencrantz continues that dark power is not so easily tamed. So Parliament raised a paling round the cities and set Dark out to pasture. And this is why, from this line, I think that, well, I you know that a fence was put around the cities. I thought he was being very figurative about this paling, but it sounds like it's a literal fence that was put around the city. It's literal, but I think it's magic. A magic fence. Yeah, it could be a magic fence. Yeah, but I think it's a magic fence because that's the Kildean writing. He refers to it as the City of the Dark and the ancient Kildean priestess Mullenkamp, which, do you know who she is now? That's the woman dancing at the start, the belly dancer. That's the priestess Mullenkamp. He then finishes with, 
all that was needed was fodder and they came to feed. He claims that the earthquake that happened 25 years ago stocked the city with corpses. And then, as if by magic, you know, an earthquake happens, he just says, oh, all the earthquakes killed everyone, made corpses, and then an earthquake happens there and then. And I'm not really sure why. I don't, it doesn't really reinforce or cement anything for me. No, it's just like lots of people died, so then they came back as zombies. Ashley states, a fight with darkness is happening, and Rosencrantz adds, and you, the parliament's champion in that battle. But this is where Ashley's words don't really reassuring, and Rosencrantz protests back at Ashley that he only speaks the truth. Ashley dismisses this and says, you have no evidence, and Rosencrantz says to him, for that you must search. Ashley turns away to walk into the forest, adding, I will cut you next time we meet. Leave the city before sundown if you value your life. Rosencrantz tells us about the snowflies and that they gather where the dark runs strongest, but I've played ahead of this and that literally just doesn't mean anything. It's just, he says it, but it doesn't change the gameplay. Also, I, I don't get why Ash was so kind of, you know, going to cut Rosencrantz next time he sees him. I mean, fair enough. He's some guy who was following him and whatnot, but he's he's tried to give him this information and, and Ashley's response seems a little bit... I just don't think Ashley believes him. I think he just thinks he's full of nonsense and he doesn't want him to, to speak to him. So I think it's just a threat to tell him, you know, don't come near me. So really, that's it for this section. You know, we've spent over 40 minutes talking about what is essentially a 15-minute section of the game. But that was a lot of story. Yeah, there's a lot of story, and particularly the interactions between characters like um, Gildenstern and Sydney um, are important. The fact that you can see Ashley doing his shinning and Gildenstern now knows that he can do that um, is interesting. Yeah, we learned that Sydney probably unlocked this ability or gave him this ability. Yeah, I think as well that Samantha is a little bit... I think she's worried about a lot of things. Um, I think, you know, she's the type that people, you know, Sydney can get into her head. Uh, she seems quite, you know, quick to draw her sword as well. So I don't know how she's going to play out. And as you said, Sydney is becoming more of a grey character than being clearly yeah. black and white. Uh, I think you can see that Gildenstern is, seems to be a bit more on the dark side. This Rosencrantz yeah. guy, who knows what he's up to, but I would say he's probably also not on the good side. So it's interesting to see where people no. are now falling in there. Yeah. Well, we know he works for the Duke, but he's been he's talking to Ashley, trying to give him advice, possibly. But we we really don't know what his end game is. Maybe he's just chances are he's the type of guy that does whatever from to the to the highest pair, and maybe somebody else has intercepted him in the meantime and, and said we'll give you more than the Duke. Yeah, could be. What else did we learn? We learned that they're looking for the Grand Grimoire, and this possibly, according to your theory, could be Ashley. Yeah, I think Ashley is the is is the power or whatever they're looking for. They may not realize that. But I think Sydney realizes it. I don't think Gildenstern realizes it. Um, and I think Sydney is trying to this whole chase of getting Ashley to chase him is a means of unlocking Ashley's power or whatever this is he's looking for. So I think Sydney, I would hypothesize that Sydney knows that Ashley is the power. His whole getting Ashley to chase him is a means of unlocking this. Uh, Ashley doesn't know it. I don't think Gildenstern knows it. So, yeah, we'll see where that goes. So that's it for this evening. We get to the save point, save our progress, and return to the real world. Thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate it. You can find us on Facebook as Retrospective Replay, and also Twitter 
as at Retro Replay Pod if you want to like and follow us. You can also email us at retrospectivereplay at gmail.com with any questions, comments or patch notes. Until next week, good night and Godspeed. Godspeed.